Welcome to the Digital Business Models Podcast, hosted by Gennaro Cofano, creator of 4WeekMBA.com. The 4WeekMBA.com is a leading resource of business insights. Top business schools around the world reference to it as the go-to place for business insights. Now it's podcast. Digital Business Models will break down for you how tech companies make money, what value propositions they offer, why they are successful, and what they're doing next. From Amazon, Google, Facebook, and many others, the Digital Business Models Podcast will give you the top business education you need to understand the digital business world. Whether you're an entrepreneur, an executive, or wanting to be an entrepreneur, the Digital Business Models Podcast is your go-to place for your business education. Today we are with uh, Ash Mauria. Um, thank you for, for joining me for, a week for this conversation, Ash. That's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So just to give a bit of introduction, uh, many people might know you because, uh, of course, you're, you're the author of uh, Running Lean, Scaling Lean. You created the, 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 a variation of the business model canvas, which is the Lean Canvas, and you're also the, the, the author of the one-page business plan. But most of all, you are an entrepreneur. So for, for uh, people that know you as, as an author, it might be interesting actually to introduce yourself to say how you got you know from from this um um from this journey uh, to becoming an author and what uh, you know brought you there so it would be interesting to hear from you the, your experience sure yes so so becoming an author speaker which is what i tend to do most of my time now other than you know run the business uh, was never part of the master plan so as you said i was a practicing entrepreneur uh, but along the way in my journey, I had started many projects, many built many products. Um, all of them started out the same way. They all started out amazing, fantastic. They all were very promising, but they didn't end up the same way. Many of them I ended up shutting down. Um, the thing that bothered me was not that I shut them down because I knew that you have to search for good ideas. So I was ready for the ups and downs. What I wasn't ready for was the time it was taking. So I was taking about two years from when I had an idea to when I knew it would work or not. And that I realized was just too long because I had way too many ideas and not enough time. So I started um, studying just how I was building products, started studying how others were building products, um, began a blog. And around this time is when there was some work happening with, uh, with Eric Reese and Steve Blank, and that eventually became the Lean Startup. So the timing was just right. I kind of joined in on that conversation. Um, but even then, I was still an entrepreneur. I was doing this all as, as a side project. I was blogging. That blog kind of grew in popularity. Eventually, some of my readers started asking me to consider writing a book. Um, at first, I said no, but then I said, eventually got convinced. And so I wrote my first book in a very non-traditional way. I was really blogging, and the blog turned into the book. Um, and then... I began to just get more immersed in this world, um, started to run a few workshops as a way to test the content. Um, that's when the Lean Canvas got developed. And then one day I realized that the world had changed. There were entrepreneurs really everywhere and it was a very interesting time. And so I felt like this was a time to do something about it. And I decided to sell my previous business and became kind of a full-time entrepreneur building products for other entrepreneurs. That's what we do at LeanStack but then also continuing to develop this body of work. 
quite interesting. So uh, what, what I like the most about you and uh, actually all the people that I try to invite uh, for, for uh, on the four week MBA is that you, you got uh, to where you are right now from, uh, from, um, uh, you know, from, from practicing. So you, you were actually uh, doing things and that's how you ended up studying. It was not the opposite process, which is what uh, many people get stuck with. You know, they, they, they study business like it is something uh, um, that, uh, you know, it, it's an academic discipline, but in reality business, uh, we, we do it at least like for me as well, it's because we want to start uh, companies and you know that's and that's what I like uh, I like the most so um in in uh, in your experience uh, what is one of the uh, or like the biggest misconceptions that um, you know as, as you've been dealing a lot with uh, entrepreneurs um wh- what are the misconceptions that they have when uh, it comes to starting uh, a business or like transitioning from being like a employee to uh, entrepreneur I mean, what are some of the misconceptions that you find time and time again? Yeah, so I, I find that the biggest one that I also just learned as an entrepreneur um, is this idea of risk taking. We all have this image of the, you know, the heroic entrepreneur who will just jump off a cliff and then magically figure out how to build a parachute on the way down. Um, I find that some of the more uh, more seasoned entrepreneurs are really very risk averse. Um, and that is that they will pack, make sure they pack a parachute and a backup parachute before they jump off, off the cliff because they want to protect their downside. Um, and to me, this was something that I, I, I didn't think to be true. So that's one of, one of the misconceptions, which I think is a big one because when we start out with our ideas, we think it's okay to take a lot of risks. Um, but in reality, the, the, the framework that, that we teach here at LeanStack is one where we try to prioritize removing all the risk or removing the riskiest pieces in order. So start with the riskiest things and then gradually what you're left with is a business that can work. So that's one of the myths. But then the other one that I uh, see also that's very common is more of a bias than a myth. And then a myth, and this is the innovators bias for their solution. So when we see an idea, we quickly jump to the first solution that, that enters our mind. But as we know, the first solution is not always going to be the optimal one and oftentimes it's the wrong one Uh, but the challenge that we run into is we start to believe that that is what we have to build Um, and then we spend all our energies really chasing the wrong risks so we chase we chase the building of a product um, and if that product is not something that the market needs or wants by the time you build it and have exhausted a lot of resources you realize you have to start all over and that often is a big um, setback for for people at least first-time entrepreneurs Yep, very very interesting actually, and both of them are, are very important. Uh, actually, one of my questions was about the the, the innovators bias that uh, you explained also in uh, in uh, in your books, um, and you know I, I think this is uh, even uh, more uh, like true in in the high tech world where where you know uh, people uh, and entrepreneurs get in love with uh, with uh, with the product or with the features rather than you know understanding. Uh, what's the, the problem and this is another uh, key element of your framework so you, you highlight and you stress uh, many many times that what really matters is not um, it, it, you, you say uh, like uh, in, uh, in your books like you also explain that it's not just important uh, the, the product market fit but you want to start actually from another uh, perspective which is the problem uh, market fit uh, can you can you explain uh, explain us a bit more how this works, this problem. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. So, 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 yeah. So, so it's it's as, as you said, one of the biases that that many entrepreneurs fall run into is this premature love of of solution. And so, what like first principles in science, you almost have to deconstruct the idea. So we have to start with basics. Um, in this case, when we look at a business, we have to break it down into customers and problems. If if you don't have right the right customers who are trying to get certain problems solved then no matter what solution you build, it doesn't really matter because we know that unless you're solving a problem, customers are not going to use it, they're not going to pay you money. Even if you can reach them, even if you have a patent or an unfair advantage, it doesn't matter at the end of the day because your customers don't care. So that's the way we logically break it down. But the bias is one of those things that, as we know, that's, um, that's very sneaky. So it, it comes up on us and it pretends um, to be very tempting. And so when we have the idea, we think, you know, this is surely the solution. Um, what we try to do to overcome that is we come up with a lot of techniques for continuous testing. So even though we may have a product in mind, we don't build the entire product. This is where the notion of the minimum viable product comes in. We build something smaller. And even before that, even if we have a product that's small that we want to build, we don't even start with that. We might start with the demo. We might first go and find customers, see if we can reach them, um, even talk to them because if we can't talk to customers, we can't sell them anything. So we start all the way back. So it's starting with with the end in mind, um, and then deconstructing our way back all the way to the beginning and start validating bottoms up. So that generally is how how we overcome that uh, that innovators bias for solution. As we were saying, uh, it's very important that you start validating the idea um, and actually the product even even. Uh, probably before you start uh, building it. And there is, I think, a group of entrepreneurs which also believes that um, you even have to sell the product even before you actually start uh, building it. Um, what, what, what do you think in that, uh, in that sense? Does, like, does it make sense to actually uh, sell a product even before you have it so that you can validate the idea as quickly as possible? Yeah, no, that's, that in many ways is, is exactly what we also teach. Um, and so if you look at the traditional way we have sold products is we would build it first, then demo it to a customer and then sell it. Um, what we teach is build a demo first, you know, sell that demo. And if you can't sell the demo, then don't even build the product. So it's instead of um, build, demo, sell, it is demo cell build. So, so that's where we can go a lot faster as we can start with demos. That not only helps us validate for market risk, but it also even helps you in a way test to test what you're going to build because your demo can show what the product will do. And if the customer doesn't like it, you can still change it. And this also solves the problem of a product market fit because at that stage, if you already sold the product, it means that there is, a, even if a, a small market, but there is a market for it. Correct, correct, yes. I mean, so, so then, then the risk shift. So this, again, is where we are systematically testing risk because we, we recognize that customer market risk is the riskiest. So if you can sell, we have mitigated some of it. But now the, the next question is, can you actually build what you promised? Because if you, if you right. sell something without having built it, then we have the feasibility risk. Um, that is usually less risky, but it's still not... not uh, a given there are many many products companies cannot build good products and so you can still fail but at least you have proven that if you build what you showed the customer then you stand to get at least that customer right and of course of course the simplest the product the more this model this framework is going to work because of course if you're trying to 
offer a high-tech product which is not yet um, like technologically ready might be probably too risky from the feasibility standpoint so it might make sense to start from a, from a product or from a technology which in a way, a way is already commercially viable and build a product on top of that Sure, sure. And, and of course, you know, all of that is relative. So just to give you, you know, to, to show the extreme example, for example, you know, Richard Branson and Elon Musk are already selling tickets to, to the moon. Right. Um, they know that, that it, it, is, it is technically possible. They, don't, they can give you a project plan for when, um, but they know that it will happen one day. And so the early adopters who are willing, to, who want to be the first to go on a, on a vacation on the moon are buying tickets already. So. Right, right. And this this introduces actually uh, introduces us uh, on an interesting topic, uh, which is you know in, in many cases, especially in the high tech uh, um, uh, world, uh, a critical issue is how you jump uh, the the, the so called chasm. So how you uh, you bring your product from the early uh, adopters to the to the uh, early majority. Um, yeah. what, what's your take on that? I mean, uh, is it important? Uh, or like a small market, uh, it's enough to get started. Yeah. So, so, so I guess the, the first thing I will say is that most companies never even get to saturate their early adopters because it's just not easy to build something valuable for even early adopters. So, so oftentimes we we joke and say, you know, you should be so lucky to even have the chasm to jump over because most people never even get that far. Um, so that's one way to think of it. But in in more seriousness it is something to be aware of. And so the way that we try to um, uh, kind of prepare for that is one, we try to make the early adopters not too, too narrow. We want to make them big enough to where you can build at least a business that is, is sustainable on its own. It's going to be a small, small version of the business model, but at least it gives you some, some room with which to then grow to product market fit and beyond. So that's one approach. So don't make your early adopters as five or 10 people. It has to be, you know, it has to be of some, some reasonable scale to where, where it makes sense. Um, but then the more important thing is that when you get to serve those early adopters, the learning you get from them, the testimonials you get from them, the, the, uh, the social proof you get from them is really what the, the early majority, uh, uh, the, 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 the early majority need to actually um, de-risk the idea for themselves. So they don't want to be first, but they can happily be second as long as there are enough first people in front of them. Interesting, interesting. And um, that uh, actually, uh, I think it's a very important point because in the in the business world, we all get in love with the, with the, with the consumer product, but in reality, it's one of the most difficult products to get into the market. And in many cases, when you build a successful business, most probably it's going to be for a very few clients that actually have a very high um, li lifetime value. So it makes more sense to start from those customers rather than try to go like in on uh, in the, um, uh, like uh, early majority, as, as we said, which is very interesting. And another misconception, which I believe uh, there is in the in the, the business world, uh, like for many, is. Uh, is that uh, you execute a business model, but there is a point that you make in your in your book, uh, uh, Scaling Lean, which is actually is not about execution; it's about searching it. Uh, wh what's that? I mean, uh, why why uh, is it the case? Yeah, so it's 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 it, it's it's one of those things where if if you look at the execution kind of mindset, it it, it goes back to the original business planning type of world where 
we would take an idea, we would spend all this time doing the analysis, um, and even though we didn't know all the facts, we would raise some money, build a team, and then start executing a plan. Um, that playbook used to work at a time when there wasn't a lot of competition. So if you could build a product, get it to market, and even if it was wrong, you still had the attention of customers because they would work with you. Even if you got it completely wrong, you could build the product again, and that's how big companies have survived, have survived for all these, all these years. Today, the world is very different. I read a statistic recently that there are about 100 million ideas that get started every year. That's 100 million, that's three yeah. a second. Um, so when there are those many ideas, if you spend nine months coming up with this perfect plan that isn't flawed, um, in that same time, you can do the math. There are probably lots of other ideas which are similar to yours, and you only need one of them to break through. Um, and so that's why that old model doesn't work. And so we have to go a lot faster than before. And now if you're going faster, when you go so fast, you can't really execute. You have to be constantly learning. And that's why we, we kind of talk about this as being a search versus execution mindset is we make some rough plans, um, but through the validation process, we are constantly course correcting, which is how business planning should have been in the start. The danger, the challenge always has been is that it's such a big document, it's such a big artifact that nobody wants to keep it up to date. Um, but tools that we use now that are lighter weight allow you for that kind of dynamic evolution. Interesting. Uh, you also make an interesting point uh, in, in one of your articles, uh, is that uh, you say like a business plan, even when you actually write it, uh, your investors won't even read it because mm-hmm. what they want from you is actually the pitch, uh, is uh, the pitch deck, like the uh, elevator speech. So those are all short form of uh, your business plan, which really allows them to, to grasp, to be inspired by, by your story and what, what is that you're trying to you know, um, sell them uh, when it comes to your startup idea. So um, it changes the perspective on how I looked at the, the business plan, for sure. Um, and there is actually one metric that you look at when it comes to the success of a company, which I loved when I was reading your, your, uh, your book, like the uh, Scaling Lean, um, which is traction. Like, w- what is it? Why, why, why is that uh, so important? Yeah, so, so, so when, I, when I ask this question to people, oftentimes I'll hear answers like, so then the, then the question often is, what is the one metric that both the entrepreneurs, the innovators, as well as the investors, the stakeholders want? Um, and oftentimes people will say money or profit, but that's not enough because you may have money this quarter, but next quarter it goes down. So it, has, it cannot just be money or profit. It has to be a rate of return. So it has to be growth driven. Um, and that's what traction is about. But what's even more interesting about traction is that traction also is not the rate at which you make money, but rather it's about some of the leading indicators towards making money. So for example, if I just look at a company like Starbucks and I look at their balance sheets, I can tell that they are growing because every quarter they're making more money. What I don't know is how they're growing or why they're growing. And so the why is when we start to study customer behaviors, we can see what customers are doing in the store that may be contributing to the most money. And that's where we come up with new campaigns or new policies or new experiments where we double down on those things that drive more money. And then we see if the next quarter that goes up. And that's in many ways what traction is. What's exciting about traction is the rate at which a a, a company captures monetizable value 
from its customers. That's how we, we, we like to define traction. Interesting. And, you know, that's uh, a point that uh, I also miss uh, many times uh, because, for instance, I, I look a lot at financial statements, but the problem is that when you do look at financial statements, you miss uh, the, the, this kind of picture, which is traction. And, you know, the fact that not all the money that comes in is, is uh, let's call it good money. Sure. I think one example, if you look at Amazon, like um, balance sheets for, for years, Amazon has been running at very tight margins. But in reality, the reason uh, Amazon was doing that is because it was capturing uh, market value and it was actually um, uh, pulling other, other businesses within, within, uh, within the company. So like, if you look at Amazon today, the composition of its business model is quite different. And even though, again, the, the online store, it's a very, um, very tight margin, it's what actually drove the, the growth of other business units that today contribute to most of Amazon uh, success. So it's, uh, yeah. yeah. And uh, what do you think of, um, because of course we, we don't look at profits, fine, but profits, I guess it's still a good metric to understand whether a business model is viable. Because today, if you look at the many, especially the, the uh, tech IPO uh, IPOs go, uh, going on, uh, you look at the, the, the financial statements and the first thing that you notice is that the bottom, uh, bottom line is, is negative. So they're actually uh, running at net losses uh, in, the, in the millions or in the billions in some cases, uh, like you know, we have uh, we have cases uh, like there's gonna there's like WeWork, there's Uber, there are right. other companies um, which we call uh, like decacorns, like companies like startups worth worth more than 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 ten billions. But uh, what do you think? Uh, are those uh, can we say that those companies have a sustainable business model, even though they're not yet turning a, a net profit? In, in my opinion, no. And so this is where, I mean, all those companies had an inflection point. So all those companies, when they hit product market fit and beyond, they had a choice to make, which is we can become a very profitable company or we can become a fast growing company. So it was growth versus profit. And many of their investors chose growth over profit because it goes back a bit to the Amazon strategy, which is let's get so big that then we, we have an unfair advantage. The, the mistake, though, is that as you correctly defined in the, in the Amazon case, they were essentially diversifying their business model and yes. they were able to sustain the company at the expense of you know, divisions within the company to build a very a much stronger whole uh, than the sum of the parts. But in the case of many of these one, one idea types of companies, that is the whole company. And so to me, it doesn't make economical sense when you're just growing for the sake of growth with no end of, of it ever turning into a profit. So it becomes more of a speculative game, um, which is what a lot of the derivative assets and the, you know, the whole markets are about. Um, but you look at many companies, Skype being one of them, that grew you know, the huge valuation and then got essentially sold for a very big loss. Um, and now it's inside another company and you know, it, may, it may be there for a while, but maybe also passed around. So it's one of those things where it's, it's, it's a bit like the hot potato game at some point, And I'm not a huge fan of that. At some point, all companies need to turn profitable. Interesting. Absolutely. I agree with you. I was reading uh, the, the financial prospectus of uh, Uber uh, and they, they point out that the reason why they're uh, putting so much uh, effort on growth is that, is that they're trying to capture what they call a, li uh, a liquid or liquidity and network effects, which means they, they, they try to, to uh, grow their network at the point where they, they, they have uh, the, the whole control over it. And once they do have this kind of control, they're going to be able to capture higher margins in the future, which we don't know 
if this is going to be the case and yeah. me a quite quite risky strategy what, what uh, Ray Hoffman in uh, in his book uh, calls uh, bit scaling so it's like prioritizing growth over over uh, all the other aspects of of uh, the business model so yeah so, so it, it's one of those things where it, it, i mean if, if and the reason i use the word derivative currency is that if if you look at any any kind of derivative market when we had all the housing crisis at least in the us here people invented all kinds of terms and they all sounded very smart and intelligent. It right. doesn't mean they're, they're true. <laughs> and, um, and it doesn't mean they're going to work in the long run. Work. Yeah. So it's a theory and sure, you know, it, it, they could be right, but they could also be wrong. And then the right. people who are making the bets, they are the ones who are going to pay. Right. Um, and it, it, the, the interesting part is that if they are going to turn out to be wrong, like they, there will be people losing a lot of money, which is sure. which is not the point of entrepreneurship because as we as you said at the beginning, uh, which is something that I realized also after a few years is that entrepreneurs try to minimize risk, not not to actually uh, um, leverage risk because uh, entrepreneurs are not bankers, they're not like financiers, they're, they're like uh, very practical people and they try to relaunch businesses and minimize the risk, um, and uh, it's. Um, uh, Again, I love to ask you like many questions. I also want to limit the time because otherwise, you know, people might uh, get uh, uh, bored. So um, I just want to to ask you: you have an interesting way to classify business models in in uh, in your book in Scaling Lean, uh, and you simplify the, the the model of classifying them. Uh, I just would love to hear from you uh, the the framework you use. Um, which really I loved because uh, otherwise it gets too confusing for people to understand the whole concept of, of business modeling. Sure. <laughs> yeah, so I, I come from a technical background, and so I always like to think in terms of patterns and systems. And so if you look at a business model, there are a number of actors in them. You know, there are users, there are customers, there are buyers, there are sellers. Um, there are also many different business model types. And so I decided to classify business models just in terms of interactions. So the more interactions you have, the more complex the model, the fewer, the less. So I, so I came up with three basic archetypes. Um, one of them was the direct model, and that's the simplest. So this is where you have a user, and that user is also your customer or becomes your customer. Um, so I talked about Starbucks early on. That's the example I use in the book. So they're a coffee shop. We know that you go to the coffee shop, you smell the coffee, if you like it, you buy it. So you, the user, becomes the customer. So that's a one-actor model. And so that's kind of the simplest one. Then we have the multi-sided model, which would, the best example there that's simple to understand would be Facebook. So this is where you have users and customers. Typically, the user side is free, but the free in the sense that they don't pay directly, but there's no such thing as a free user in a business model. So they pay, they're pay, all of us that use Facebook pay Facebook with a derivative currency. We're paying them with our attention. We're paying them with our data, um, which Facebook collects and then packages it up for advertisers. And then the advertisers advertise to us and, and make money. So the advertisers, there are the customers. And then the users are people like us who might use the service. So that model can be applied in many different places. Anytime there's a user side that creates an asset that then gets monetized this could be monetization of data. It could be monetization of user-generated content. Um, even in a not-for-profit, this kind of may sound strange, but in a not-for-profit, you're essentially monetizing impact. So you have people that you're serving. So maybe you're serving people in, a, in the Red Cross. Um, and then you have donors. Donors are the customers, and the people that you help are going to be the users in that system. 
So that would be the multi-sided model. And then the final model is the marketplace model. And this would be like Airbnb, for example. Um, that one is easy to understand. You have buyers and sellers, and they come together to conduct a transaction. And then that's how the business makes money by either capitalizing on a percentage of the transaction through a commission or something, something of that sort, transactional fee. Right. Very, very interesting. And, and it is very important to remark that uh, I believe that a business model is uh, always uh, evolving. So even if you if you think about a uh, Google business model, um, you know, there, there is a whole discussion going on because, you know, I, I work a lot in the in the SEO world and there's a whole discussion going on of publishers, which, uh, you know, uh, fear Google uh, automating part of the process of generating content or extracting content from the websites. And, you know, the, the value proposition of companies like Google changes at all time. So um, even though, uh, like, there is always, always, I think, a key, a key player or a key, key partner that any company has. For instance, for Google, I think, is the user. So if the user gets value from the information that Google offers, then Google is going to be looking at what the users do rather than focus on what publishers think. Of course, publisher is another key player, but the, users is, uh, the user is more, is more important. So business model is, is always uh, evolving. So I think this is very important concept to, to, to highlight. Um, just to finish uh, this up, just a, a couple of quick questions. Uh, is, there, is there a favorite like uh, business person that uh, you follow the most, uh, someone that you suggest the community also to follow, uh, of course, be, uh, be beside you? <laughs> um, so I, I tend to be a very deliberate reader. So, so I, I have over the years followed many people. And so that's why it's when people ask me that question, like what's your favorite book or who's your favorite thinker or um, it's, it's hard, it's hard to answer because it kind of changes. And so again, when I talk about um, love the problem, not the solution, a lot of it is really chasing problems that, that keep up, that keep one up or keep the business up. Um, and so that's for me generally who I, who I tend to follow, um, in terms of kind of, I would just say, and, and this is, you know, maybe not a, not a very unique answer, but if I look at someone like Elon Musk, apart from his, um, you know, his, his work life or lack, I should say, a lack of work life balance. That's something I, I don't think he has to be so, so disbalanced about. Um, I, I do admire a lot of his thinking. He has like a very nonlinear way of thinking. Uh, which is something we try to teach is this idea of 10x thinking. Yes. Um, so take a problem, you know, deconstruct it, don't think, and then don't put it back in the same way because then you build the same thing. Put it, you know, try to remove some of the steps and try to make some leaps forward. So I find that's something you see in a lot of his, his ideas and his business. And I think it's a very powerful thinking process, but also skill that can be developed and can be taught. So, so that's something I, I respect a lot. Uh, from him, I learned a lot from just watching, you know, I never met Steve Jobs, but just watching the way his career and kind of how he went through setbacks, but also how good of a storyteller he was. Um, so I, so there are a lot of people that I've kind of from, from, a, you know, from, from the, I guess from the more famous people, those are the people who I tend to have followed, but behind the scenes, there are just a lot of, there are a lot of authors and thinkers um, from philosophy, from science, um, from engineering that I just constantly read because I, I look for patterns everywhere and you'll find, you'll find solutions to problems everywhere. The hard part is piecing them together and trying to synthesize them towards something that, that can make sense. Interesting. And uh, the, the, the 10x thinking is, uh, is uh, so important. What uh, also the, the Googlers, the, the, the people from Google yeah. 
called uh, moonshot uh, moonshot thinking, which is which is a very very important concept. We I try to apply. Uh, it's very difficult one, but very interesting one. So and. Are there any uh, companion books that you suggest reading, you know, beside uh, like Running Lean and Scaling Lean, which I suggest for everyone because they really give you uh, the, the foundation to understand how entrepreneurship should work today. So is there any companion books that, uh, that you suggest reading? Yeah, so I guess the, the one that, that I guess goes along with the series, which a lot of people, if, if you've read, if you've, if you've read of, uh, if you've heard of Lean or Lean Startup, you probably have, have read it, but it's the Eric Ries kind of Lean Startup book. Um, and I really suggest that because that's more of a big idea book, which has a lot of kind of case studies and at least gets people to understand the context in which a lot of these things apply. I tend to write a lot of how-to books. So my, my book tends to be kind of more fitting in, in the sense of, um, of, of how do you practice, practice these kinds of things. Um, along those lines, I also find the Lean Analytics book um, by Alistair Kroll and, and Ben Yoskovitz to be a, a very good book. Um, it gets more into kind of the metrics and, and what that you would need to be able to, uh, to, to kind of uh, uh, measure and, 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 test and, and, and test your business. Um, out, outside that, you know, there, as I said, said there, there are many books that are being published. Uh, um, it, it really comes down to I guess if I if I look at an individual, I try to get a sense of what are the things that they they know well, and what are the things that there are gaps in, and there are usually some books that that one can recommend there. Um, I I had to learn a lot of marketing on my own, so a lot of marketing books um, are are good books to pick up, and there are some some very some very good classics out there that are worth picking up. Yep. Thank you very much, Ash. It was a pleasure having you, and thank you really for uh, giving uh, giving us a bit of your time. Sure, absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Digital Business Models Podcast, created by 4WeekMBA.com, the leading source of business insights for those wanting to become digital entrepreneurs. Go to 4WeekMBA.com for more top-tier business education.